Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you're in control of all things. And uh, thank you that you're the Lord of hosts. So please now, Lord, we ask that you'd guide us and lead us. Have your way with us in all that we say and do here today. Lord, we want to hear from you by the power of your Holy Spirit who speaks to our hearts, who guides us into all truth according to your word, which is the lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. So please have your way with us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Jeremiah chapter 46. Jeremiah 46. Now, you may recall, last week we um, kind of ended, if you will, sort of the historical narrative of the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, uh, you recall, prophesied to the nation of Judah, which was the southern remnant of the nation of Israel by this point in time. Um, and, um, and after the conquest of Judah by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., then the nation of Judah uh, basically ran out of fear to Egypt, and we left them in Egypt, and historically that's kind of where, uh, where that left off. And then there was a little encouragement to Baruch, chapter 45, that was Jeremiah's assistant. And then chapters 46 through 51 enter a new section of the book of Jeremiah. 46 through, um, I'm sorry, for, yeah, 46 to 51 are basically prophecies against nations, primarily nations around Judah or Israel at the time. So, you know, the, the Old Testament's the history of the nation of Israel, right? But it obviously involves the surrounding nations. And so we're going to hear about what God has to say about some of these other nations and their rebellion because God is the God of all nations, including the United States of America, right? And then finally in chapter 52, <clears throat> we get a review of the fall of Jerusalem again. And there you have the book of Jeremiah. And so, but today for our purposes... Um, we start this new section, and uh, we see some prophecies around the, uh, regarding the nations around Judah. Now, in your mind, keep in your mind roughly, and I know it's history, so it's Sunday. It's not like Monday morning, and you're not in junior high and, and all that. So work with me a little bit, but keep in your mind like we're talking around 600 B.C., okay? And so... Uh, first thing you got to know when you do that is then when I throw out dates, you got to know how to count backwards. Everybody okay with that? Like, okay, so 600 B.C. Was 580 B.C. before or after 600 B.C.? Okay, good, you got it. So you can, ha you can hang with this, okay? Everybody got it? Was 722 B.C. before or after 586 B.C.? Before. Very good. Okay, I think we can do this. I feel good about it so far. You guys feel okay with this? Okay, good. So um, to further drive home the point that it's not um, Monday morning in school, we got audio visuals and cool laser pointer, right? I don't know. I just, I'm just feeling it today. 
Just feeling it. That's all I can say. So I picked this picture because it's got a cool S. So since we're talking all about me, it kind of stands for Scott, right? <laughs> so it helps you remember the map, you know, just kind of think Scott, kind of a red S right there. So right around 600 B.C., we've got a power shift in the world's powers, right? And in all seriousness, this is the point I want to drive home today, right? Because today we have a very tangible uh, struggle for world-dominating powers, right? Is there anything new under the sun? No, no. What we're seeing today is just same book, different chapter of what we saw 2,600 years ago, okay? That's the take-home. You can go to sleep now. That's the take-home message, okay? But anyway, so all that to say, uh, it'd be worthwhile to kind of talk about some of these world-dominating powers. And even today, I think about, you know, you know, of course, we're sort of self-absorbed, so we know that America is the world-dominating power, right? But then you kind of like, well, maybe it's, you know, North Korea's kind of over there, Russia's kind of doing some stuff, and China's there, and, you know, might be a coalition of the EU that might be kind of, you know, and you kind of like feel like the cards are moving around, right? Well, that's how it was in 600 BC. So 600 BC, you got the Assyrian Empire. They're kind of, think of the Assyrian Empire as kind of over here off the map this way and kind of down into here. And uh, you recall about 100 and, well, 722 BC would have been 120-ish years before this, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, which would have included, um, well, here's Jerusalem. And so, you know, really most of that kind of area there. And so 722, so we're talking, of, you know, over 100 years prior, Assyria has been the, the dominating empire. But what we're seeing at this point in history is this struggle between Assyria and Babylon, okay? And so you got Assyria, who has been the world-dominating empire. Babylon is going to become the world-dominating world empire. And along the way, Egypt would like to be the world-dominating empire. Okay? So that sets up an interesting situation. Uh, around 609 B.C., uh, we have this battle um, where... Josiah is killed. You recall Josiah was the last good king of the nation of Judah, okay? And so what happened at 609 B.C., uh, Pharaoh Necho from Egypt comes up, and he is afraid of the Babylonians, who are primarily centered over here, and, Israel, and Assyria is primarily centered over here, but, you know, they all want this uh, main area. And so Egypt is going to come up and try to help the Assyrians thump the Babylonians. And you recall uh, from uh, earlier times we've talked, Josiah kind of came out here and tried to fight off the king of Egypt on his way up to help Assyria. Well, he never really, the king of Egypt didn't really help Assyria much, uh, but what he did imagine, what he did accomplish was he killed Josiah. And so Josiah was actually killed sort of messing with, you know, other people's business, basically. But the reason I like this map, I mean, this is the nation of Israel, right? 
but you see that the nation of Israel is kind of the highway of all these common power struggles. Does that make sense? And so, um, so that's that. Now, if you zoom in, and I, the map doesn't really do this uh, so much. You can look at the maps in the back of your Bible and all that. But you see that right there is the city of Gaza. You probably can't read that right there. But just for our purposes today, here's what I want us to know. Gaza, is, that area where it's called Gaza, is basically the area where the Philistines um, occupied. And then if you look, there's the Dead Sea. If you think about over on the right side of the Dead Sea, okay, and you think about this really whenever you're reading Bible history, if you go to the right side of the Dead Sea, below the Dead Sea, think Edom, the descendants of Esau. Right across from the Dead Sea, think Moab, uh, one of the descendants of, of Lot. And then right above the Dead Sea, over on this side, think Ammon, the Ammonites. So the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. The reason I talk about that today, we're going to talk about Egypt, we're going to talk about the Philistines, and we're going to talk about the Moabites. Is that fair? Everybody got that? Yeah. Clear as mud? Yeah. Okay. Um, make sure I got everything I wanted to read. Okay. So the point is, Egypt and Babylon are going to compete for dominance, or Egypt and, or, I'm sorry, Babylon and Assyria are going to compete for dominance. Okay. Who wins? Babylon. And then Babylon and Egypt are going to compete for dominance. Who's going to win? Babylon. All right. So where we pick up the narrative today, uh, we're going to see sort of more of the struggle. Assyria is going to be off by the wayside, and we're going to talk about the struggle really between Babylon and Egypt. Fair enough? Mem got it memorized? Map's going away. Last chance. All right. So there you go. Now, Everybody turned to Jeremiah chapter 46, as I asked earlier, right? Okay, good. Put your finger there and turn back to the left. 2 Kings chapter 6. If you're at 1 Kings, you went too far. If you're at Chronicles, you haven't gone far enough. 2 Kings chapter 6. And I want to pick up in verse 13. I think it'd be wise for us as Christians today to read world history and current events the way I believe Elisha would have read them. Is that fair? So, pick up the story here in 2 Kings chapter 6. The king of Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, that was another empire prior to the rise of the Assyrians. But anyway, the king of, of Syria keeps fighting all of his enemies, and, um, and Elisha keeps telling uh, the king of Israel where, uh, you know, all of, his trade, all of the king of Syria's secrets, right? Because Elisha's a prophet, right? A prophet's a pretty cool thing to have around, like when you're exchange, trying to... It's better than a spy, Right? It's like a, it's like, you know, like a spy drone is a prophet, right? Like you don't even have to be there. You can just say it. And so that was going on uh, at the time. So pick up in verse 13. So he said, 
go and see where he is, there I may send and get him. So the king of, the king of Syria wants to send for uh, Elisha. And it was told him, saying, surely he's in Dothan. So, Joth so Elisha is hanging out in Jothan, in Dothan. And so therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So I picture this scene. The Syrian army shows up around Elisha's house, basically. And Elisha's servant gets up, looks outside, and says, Oh my goodness, we're surrounded by Syrian soldiers, right? Would that feel unsettling? Right, that'd feel unsettling. Is there a way to kill the hum? Um, sorry, it's not distracting you guys, it's distracting me, and now my acknowledgement of it distracted you, so we're just being transparent. That got it. Thanks. Okay, so, um, so the king of Syria wants to, wants to have a talk with Elisha, sends his army, they show up, they surround basically Elisha. Elisha's servant wakes up and says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, don't fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That sounds good in church, doesn't it? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? That sounds good in church, right? First John tells us that. And we know that, but we don't always feel that. Does that make sense? So, Elisha prayed, and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And I get this picture like uh, his servant's outside freaking out, and I get the impression like Elisha is inside the house, either sleeping and he doesn't want to get up yet, or he's drinking a cup of coffee, but he's just kind of not worried. So he finally says, Lord, please just open his eyes, right? Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike the people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And so, long story short, you can flip back to Jeremiah. So I picture the scene as like the Syrian soldiers are, sur are surrounding us, Right? And what we don't see in the, with our human eyes is that the army of the Lord is surrounding the Syrian army, right? And then Elisha says, oh, by the way, I'm really not in the mood to fight these guys. Can you just make them all blind? So the Lord makes them all blind. And then Elisha literally leads them into the walled city of Samaria, right? So they're all kind of captive. Uh, and then Elisha prays, Lord, open their eyes. And like... They got them, right? That's how we should read world history. We should read world history knowing that God is in control, right? Who's in control of the world right now? United States, Russia, China, North Korea. If we read the, if we read the, the news, we're like, wow, it's, I'm not real sure, right? But if we read the Bible, we're like, Lord of hosts, right? Occupies that bigger army. Right? Doesn't matter how big the army is that we see. There's a there's a there's an army that we don't see that is way bigger, way more powerful. 
And I always like the story. You remember when the Assyrians came in after they thumped the northern kingdom of Israel? They came into Jerusalem, remember? The time, or around Jerusalem. Remember during the days of Hezekiah? Right? Hezekiah prayed and said, Lord, can you help us out a little bit? And it says, an angel. Doesn't say Michael or Gabriel or one of the big shots. Said, an angel. Right? We don't even know which one or if it was you know, there's a, there's a certain hierarchy of angels. That's a whole other another teaching. But we know that an angel came and killed that night, I think, 285,000 Assyrian soldiers. Okay? So that army that surrounds the Russian army, the American army, the Ukrainian army, the Chinese army, the North Korean army, is infinitely bigger infinitely bigger. Please, 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 in this world we live in today, don't forget that. So what should our response to that be? Number one, we should pray, right? But number two, we should take comfort knowing that God is God, right? And so lots of posturing. We're seeing lots of posturing. God's purposes are all playing out, going to continue to play out. Um, You know, does this mean... uh, does this mean anything else for us prophetically or anything like that? I'm, I'm, you know, that, I'm not going to go there today. But we know this. God is in control. And uh, we know that God's purposes are real. God's purposes are going to play out. We don't know exactly when or how. But we, the, more we, the more we, every day we wake up, we're like, yep, it's a little more confirmed today. Right? I can tell you that much. So, Chapter 46, Jeremiah. The word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. So we have this, and that's why I gave you the map for context. Carchemish was up in the northern area where Assyria and Babylon were fighting. And um, what he's talking about here is that Egypt was going to go up after the, the time when they got Josiah. Now we're talking about uh, approximately uh, 605 B.C., because this would have been four years later after Pharaoh Necho killed Josiah. So 605 B.C., the Egyptians now are going up into uh, the area of Carchemish, and they're going to fight those Babylonians, right? So here we go. Here we go. Concerning Egypt, which he tells us Babylon defeated. Verse 3. Order the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets. Polish the spears. Put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and not, did not look back. The, for fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. So what he's saying is, you know, when Egypt was going to, uh, in 605 B.C., Egypt is going up to, to that area. They're going to they're gonna beat the Babylonians. They're flexing their muscles. They're putting on their buckler and shield. Uh, they're, you know, they're polishing their spears. They're putting on the armor, armor, and then they speedily flee away. They got thumped by the Babylonians. 
So flexing your muscles politically or militarily doesn't always work if you're not uh, on the Lord's side. Who is this coming up like a flood? Whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood. And its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield, and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. And so, you know, this is, uh, again, reference back to Egypt flexing their muscle. The Ethiopians, the Libyans, the Lydians are helping them out, all to no avail. The Babylonians are beating them. For this is the day of the Lord, God of hosts. This is the day of the Lord God of hosts. Now, when you see, we talked about this last week. I want to highlight it again today. When you see that phrase, the Lord God of hosts, we're talking about the hosts, that army that surrounded the Syrian army at Elisha's house. We're talking about the heavenly hosts. We're talking about the angelic world. We're talking about the big army, right? God is the God of the big army. And so he says, for this is the day of the Lord God of that big army, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts, again that reference, has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines, you shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame, for your city has filled the, your, I'm sorry, your cry has filled the land, for the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They've both fallen together. So Egypt was going up there. They said, we're going to go up like a flood, right? I mean, if you've seen a flood, you know, when a flood comes in, it's overwhelming. And so Egypt is going to go up to, to, to Babylon there like a flood. And, or to the Babylonian uh, territory, like a flood. But uh, it's going to be to no avail. And they, they fell, and that was the Battle of Carchemish. You, people talk about it, historians talk about it, the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C., when Babylon defeated Egypt. Then there was a later time, verse 13, the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so you recall the battle of Carchemish, that would have been up north when Egypt was going to try to go up and get Babylon, and they lost, right? So they kind of, you know, kind of skedaddled back home to Egypt. But Babylon wasn't satisfied with just that. And now, um, most historians say around 568 to 567, so this would have been about 20 years later. Babylon is going to come in and finally, uh, more definitively, conquer Egypt. And so the references uh, before verse 13 are references of, you know, the area around uh, the Euphrates, Carchemish, those kind of references. The references from verse 13 to verse 17 here are more places in actual Egypt itself. And so the Babylonians are coming down to conquer Egypt. The word of the Lord spoke to, Jer the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, proclaim in Noph and in Tapanes. Say, stand fast and prepare yourselves, for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand, because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall, 
Yes, one fell upon another, and they said, Arise, let us go back to our own people and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They cry there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. And so um, these are places in Egypt, and so not just Carchemish, God is going to bring punishment on proud Egypt. Keep in mind, by the way, what we read last week. The Jewish people in Judah, after they got conquered by the Babylonians, where did they go? The, re the remnant that was there, left there, they didn't get carried off to Babylon, they went to Egypt. What did God tell those people uh, would happen to them in Egypt? They were going to get conquered. That Egypt was going to get conquered and they're going to be uh, basically conquered with them. And so this is a uh, reference to that. So this was 568 to 567. It was a little bit later. And so sure enough, uh, the, remnant that was in, the remnant of Jews that was in Egypt would have been conquered at that time. And so that puts together uh, these previous chapters that we read last week, uh, chapter 44 specifically, with what we're reading today. Verse 18. As I live, says the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. See that reference? He's the Lord of hosts. Today we're talking about him as the Lord of hosts. When you read the news tomorrow morning and you figure out whatever happened uh, in Eastern Europe, you'll know that the Lord of hosts is there, right? He won't be necessarily on the news, but he's there. He's there with a bigger army than the Russians and Ukrainians put together. And so he's totally in control. Surely as Tabor's among the mountains and as Carmel by the sea, so he shall come, O you daughter dwelling in Egypt. Prepare yourself to go into captivity, for Noph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. Egypt is a, pretty, is a very pretty heifer. There's a reference for you. But destruction comes. It comes from the north. And her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, for they also are turned back. They have fled away together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity had come upon them, the time of their punishment. Her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord, though it cannot be searched, because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. The daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. And so, uh, as I live, whose name is the Lord of hosts, God is over all the world. And so, basically, Egypt was a proud nation. Egypt is a picture throughout history of the strength of the world. Uh, the strength of the world system, and they were proud because of it. They worshipped all their pagan deities, and they thought they were tough stuff, and God brings punishment to them. Does that mean the Babylonians are completely um, uh, righteous? No. They're going to get theirs, okay? But the bottom line is, when a nation rejects the Lord, or when a nation even that once followed the Lord has turned their back on the Lord, like Judah, right? God brings discipline. God brings punishment. And so we can't look at this and say, well, obviously the Babylonians are more righteous than the, uh, uh, than the Egyptians, right? Uh, all we know here is that the Egyptians were um, 
rebellious, proud, rejected the Lord, and they were punished accordingly. And so you got to be careful, like, you know, when there's a winner and a loser, to think that the winner is really a winner. No, it may just be that God is punishing the loser, right? And even in today, if we look at, you know, history, we say, well, you know, whose side is God on? Well, it's obviously on our side because we're Christians. We're, we're America. We're a Christian nation. To that, I would say, that's what the Jewish people thought, Right? So who's worse, the pagan nation or the nation that once uh, had a relationship with the Lord that's now rejected him? I'm just asking a question. I don't know that I have the answer, right? But the point is, historically, God dealt with both. And so uh, we'd be uh, foolish to be so arrogant. God doesn't like arrogance. Have you noticed that? God doesn't really take to human arrogance very well. But... We would be foolish to be so arrogant as to say, well, you know, God established this nation. We're a Christian nation. We can reject him and we're still okay. That's foolish arrogance. It's very foolish arrogance. And we are, frankly, at risk of that. Now, what does that mean for us individually? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, now we're talking about an individual person, Whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Does God have a heart for the individual person? You bet he does. Do we ever lose opportunity to have intimate fellowship and relationship with God through the grace of Jesus Christ? We never lose that opportunity. That, that opportunity never goes away. We always have sweet fellowship with the Lord at our, at our fingertips, if you will, because of the grace of God. When Jesus died, the, the curtain of the, of the Holy of Holies, the curtain of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, was torn in two from top to bottom. Most commentators say it was about a four-inch thick curtain, right? Well, that was, a, that was a work of the Lord. And what it did is it opened up the Holy of Holies, access to the presence of God. That's what we have individually, right? Now, we don't have that necessarily as a nation or politically, right? And so how does God work, balance those things out? I don't know. How does he bring punishment on a nation and yet, uh, you know, reserve the opportunity for us as individuals? That's up to him. But that's the truth of Scripture. So, Verse 25, the Lord of hosts, again, what's his name? He's the Lord of hosts. The God of Israel says, behold, I'll bring punishment on Ammon of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings. God is bringing punishment on Egypt and their gods and their kings. Pharaoh and those who trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. And so what you see here is the Lord of hosts again is punishing those who trust in Egyptian gods. And yet notice even this, God's grace we see. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old. And so um, this gives hope for sort of a resettlement. Likely this is a reference to the millennial kingdom after Jesus comes back. But do not fear, O my servant Jacob. 
Again, this is a reference to, uh, I believe, God's heart for the individual. Now picture this for a minute. You know, there's all this maneuvering for world domination, dominating power. Babylon appears to be on the winning side. They took out Assyria. They took out Egypt. They took out Judah. Where's the safest place to be right now at this point in history? You want to guess? A Jewish captive in where? Babylon. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11? Right? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to bless you, to give you a future and a hope, right? That's my paraphrase, right? Who was that written to? That was written to the Jewish individual that would surrender to the punishment of God, the discipline of God for his nation, and just go off to Babylon. Who's in Babylon shortly after the conquest? Oh, Daniel's hanging out over there. Ezekiel's hanging out over there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are hanging out over there. Do they still have their troubles? Yeah, they've got to decide whether or not they're going to bow down to golden statues and get eaten by lions and incidental things like that, right? But are they safe? Yeah. Are those Jewish people that skedaddled to Egypt because Egypt seems like a strong, safe place to be, are they safe? No. You see this? And again, I said this last week. The safest place to be is wherever God has us. The safest place to be is wherever God has us. And so he says, Do not fear, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you, for I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. So sure enough, this is a reference to the Jewish people, right? Did God take out the Assyrians? Yeah, he did. Even later, did God take out the Babylonians? Yeah, he did. We read that, we'll read that in the book of Daniel. The Medes and Persians came in, took out the Babylonians. So does God take them out? Yeah, yeah, God, God did all that. But what about the Jewish people? God preserved them. God preserves them even today, right? God's, God's prophetic timeline has uh, the Jewish people uh, very intimately involved in that, right? And so God wants to know, uh, God wants the Jewish people to know that he hasn't forgotten them. And so uh, these promises, again, are ultimately fulfilled in the uh, millennial kingdom because he says Jacob will return, have rest, and be at ease. You know, that hasn't happened yet, right? There's no rest and ease. I mean, people in Israel right now aren't like chilling, saying, yeah, we got no enemies, right? Are they doing that? No, but they will in the, in the millennial kingdom. They will when Jesus comes back. And so when you see, again, sometimes we, when we try, to, we try to put things together, and, you know, I had a guy tell me, ask me this week, hey, this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that like Ezekiel 38? And, you know, and, you know you're going to start hearing this kind of stuff, honestly. Well, you probably won't start hearing it. You've probably been hearing it all your life. Um, and um, these things are curious, and they're interesting, and yet the Word of God is the Word of God. So when you see Israel at ease, that's probably not a reference to present-day Israel, 
Right. And so um, just, again, maybe that's a little thing to help us kind of put things in timeline. Chapter 47, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. Now, the Philistines were a group of people, again, along that Mediterranean sea coast down towards Egypt, um, and they were perennial enemies of the Jewish people, mostly in, Jews, in, in, the, in the early history of the nation of Israel, um, really primarily in First and Second Samuels when we hear about the Philistines a lot. But there were five city-states, Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ashdod. Okay, so you don't need to memorize those, but sometimes when you see one of those five cities mentioned or five references, um, those are references to the Philistine people in general oftentimes. And so, so he says, before Pharaoh attacked Gaza, Gaza was one of the Philistine strongholds. So this reference is uh, likely to uh, the Pharaoh here is in 609 uh, BC, probably when he was on his way to Carchemish. Uh, he attacked Gaza along the way there during the time when he would have um, uh, killed Josiah. So this was before the Babylonian conquest of Egypt. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters rise out of the north, it shall be an overwhelming flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and all those who dwell within. Then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping hoofs of the strong horses, and at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers will not look back for their children lacking courage. And so this overflowing flood of Babylon is uh, coming, and they're going to come down and swoop down on the Philistine people, right? And the Philistines are so fearful that the fathers will literally leave, will not look back for their children, right? Now, I've not had anybody come after me to kill me, right? But I would like to think that when I run, I don't tell my wife and kids, hey, you're on your own, right? So that's the, that's the heart of the Philistine uh, described here. Because the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon were, were seacoast cities up to the north, but they were helpers, they were allies of the Philistines. Uh, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains, for the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaftor. Kaftor was, was another group of allies. So there'd be no help against the purposes of God. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is cut off. With the remnant of their valley, how long will you cut yourself? O you sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself up in your scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There he has appointed it. And so God is, God is going to bring punishment to the Philistines. And so this was uh, before uh, the final destruction of, of Egypt. Um, but there you have it. Chapter 48 we see a judgment against Moab. Now, you recall when Lot was in Sodom and the angels came and they said, get out of here because we're going to destroy this city. Remember that? And um, 
long story short, Lot grabbed his family, and it's kind of a, we get some insight into how Lot had discipled his family up prior to that time. He tells his son-in-laws, hey, we got to get out of here. And his son-in-laws thought he was joking. To me, that's one of the most sober pictures in all the scripture. His son-in-law said, thought he was joking, right? Now, I hope you know, I'm a funny guy, right? But I also know how to be serious right? And I think we need to be people who, uh, who can walk both of those lines, and it's not, um, I mean, I'm not all about entertainment and laughter so much that I can't be serious, right? Well, a lot apparently was just like, when fire and brimstone is on his way down, his son-in-laws thought he was joking. So they hang out in town, they got the fire and brimstone, right? Lot and his two daughters and his wife, they start to head out of town. His wife is like, oh, my lovely Sodom, it's being destroyed. She, what'd she do? She looked back with longing, right, for the things of the world. It's kind of a picture there, right? And um, she gets turned into a pillar of salt, right? So Lot and his two daughters, it's, a, it's an ugly story. I won't um, get specific, uh, but Lot and his two daughters um, go off into the wilderness. Next thing you know, uh, the two daughters are pregnant, and uh, one of them gives birth to uh, Ammon, a child named Ammon. The other one gives birth to a child named Moab. And Ammon was the father of the Ammonites, who were perpetual enemies of the Jews, and Moab was the father of the Moabites, who was pretty much perpetual enemies of the Jews, but occasionally there's kind of a bright spot. You remember we heard last Wednesday night, Ruth was from the area of what? Moab, right? And she's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, when David uh, was fleeing from Saul, um, uh, there in 1 Samuel, uh, he sent his family, I believe, over to Moab for kind of a protective area. They were on the other side of the Dead Sea. And you know, I think probably there's a picture there in the scripture. You know, I told you in that map, all the action was there where that red S was, in all seriousness, the red S, right? Well, Moab was sort of over in the desert. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, well, frankly, we're in America right now, right? There's, a, there's war in Eastern Europe, right? Consciously or subconsciously, we probably kind of feel like the Atlantic Ocean is our friend. Does that make sense? Right? And so Moab kind of thought the Dead Sea was their friend. Like the Jordan River was their friend. Like you guys can fight over there all you want. Right? And in that, they sort of became complacent. They sort of uh, became proud. And they thought their god Chemosh could protect them. And so uh, it's really a picture of a people group who are proud, who are secure. Does this ring home at all? Who feel like, yeah, we're okay. You know, we got, our, we got all of our ducks in a row and, you know, nobody's going to hurt us, right? It's really a picture of that kind of nation. And again, you know... These things ring true to, to today. So, I'll give you the punchline on the history of, of the Moabites. In 582 B.C., okay, now remember, 
586 BC was when the Babylonians conquered Judah, Jerusalem. 582 BC would have been four years later, Babylon conquers Moab. Okay? So Babylon's pretty much taken out everybody, and these are the, the prophecies against Moab uh, during that time, or bef before that time. Against Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo. Nebo is a city in Moab. For it is plundered. Kirjathim is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. No more praise of Moab. In Heshbon they have devised evil against her. Come and let us cut her off as a nation. You, shall also, you also shall be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue you. A voice of crying shall be from Horonam. These are all Moabite areas. Plundering and great destruction. Moab is, is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the ascent of Luhith, they ascend with continual weeping. For in the desert of Horonam, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. So, again, God's, uh, God's here the Lord of hosts. And um, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And uh, they had their gods. The Moabites uh, worshipped primarily Chemosh and a lot of pagan deities. And God is, the God of the Bible is the Lord of hosts. And so he's going to um, exert his dominance. Flee, verse 6, save your lives and be like the juniper in the wilderness because you have trusted in your works and your treasures. Should that speak to us as Americans? Because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. Now, it's okay to have cool treasures. It's okay to have great accomplishments. It's not okay to put our trust in those things. Because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. And Chemosh shall go forth into captivity. His priests and his princes together, and the plunderer shall come against every city. No one shall escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab, that she may flee and get away, for her cities shall be desolate, without any to dwell in them. Cursed is he who does, not, who does the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. And so uh, Moab is being destroyed because they trusted in their works and their treasures, as well as in Chemosh. Let me ask us today, what do we trust in? What or who do we put our trust in? Now, we're in church. We say, well, I put my trust in the Lord, right? Does that play out in our daily life, in, our, in the things that make us anxious, in the things that make us feel um, secure? Do we put our security in the Lord or in our stuff and our accomplishments? Again, that's between us and the Lord. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him, and his scent has not changed. And so, Moab has been at ease from his youth. I think part of America is, part of America's legacy is that we've been at ease. We've been at ease from our youth. It's a dangerous place to be. Again, it's okay to have treasures. It's okay to have accomplishments. It's okay to have comfort. It's okay to be at ease, right? But 
if that causes us to not have our guard up, to not be uh, diligent to serve the Lord, then we are vulnerable. And frankly, can I say this? I've seen this over the years. I see this even now. I see this in America. I see this in Madison, Indiana. I see this everywhere I go. Right? You want to have a spiritual conversation with somebody and, and you know, uh, or kind of just, you know, what's going on in life, right? Well, you know, I'm kind of working to the job and I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to, you know, uh, establish my own uh, security, right? I mean, do we have to work? We got to work. We got to do our stuff. We got to live our life. But there's a much bigger picture than what's going on in this life, right? Paul tells Timothy, no one in a, engaged in af, active warfare becomes entangled in the affairs of this life because he needs to please the commanding, so the commanding officer. It's a great picture. It's a great, while we're talking about military stuff, it's a great military picture, right? If you're in active combat, right, are you going to be talking about the stock market all day? Probably not. Are you going to be talking about your comforts and your conveniences and your securities and all that kind of stuff? If, you're in act, if, if the shells are flying all around you, probably not. Well, if we're in spiritual warfare, number one, we take comfort that the Lord of hosts is the Lord of hosts, right? He doesn't need our help, right? But for our purposes, we should be careful. I love that word entangled. We should be careful not to be entangled in the affairs of this life. I believe it's 2 Timothy chapter 2. We should be careful not to be entangled in the affairs of this life. It's a dangerous trap to be entangled in the affairs of this life. You can't run if you're entangled. You can't fight if you're entangled. You can't put on the full armor of God if you're entangled in the affairs of this life. These Moabites, they were just sort of entangled in the affairs of this life, putting their trust in stuff that they shouldn't have put their trust in, being at ease from their youth, just kind of chilling. Verse 12, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers, who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. So this is a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. When they, uh, when during the days of Jeroboam, they set up a false idol there in Bethel, and that was their confidence, and that was not a good place to put their confidence. How can you say we are mighty and strong men for the war? Moab has plundered and gone up from her cities. Her chosen young men have gone down to the slaughter, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. 
The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction comes quickly. Bemoan him, all you who are around him, and all you who know his name. Say how the strong staff is broken, the beautiful rod. O daughter inhabiting Dibon, come down from your glory and sit in thirst, for the plunderer of Moab has come against you. He has destroyed your strongholds, O inhabitant of Aror. Stand by the way and watch. Ask him who, who flees and, and her who escapes. Say, what has happened? Moab is shamed, for he is broken down. Wail and cry. Tell it in Arnon that Moab is plundered. So no worldly strength is strong when it's compared to the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you this. You don't want to be fighting against the Lord of hosts. And judgment has come on the plain country, on Holon and Jaza and Mephath, on Dibon and Nebo and Beth Diblahom, on Kirjath and Beth Gamel and Beth Meon, on Kirioth and Bozrah, on all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. The horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, says the Lord. The horn was, a, was kind of a uh, figurative reference to the strength of a nation as well as the arm. You remember the, uh, you know, we hear about the, str- the right arm of the Lord, right? Is the strength of, a reference to the strength of the Lord. So the horn of Moab was their strength. The, the right arm was uh, their strength, but it wasn't strong enough. Verse 26, make him drunk because he exalted himself against the Lord. Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he shall also be in derision. So a reference to wine, you know, they, you know, they kind of had their wine. They were, you know, it's a kind of a picture of, of vitality, of, of affluence. Uh, but it's also a picture of, of sort of a uh, drunken stupor and wallowing and vomit and uh, derision, which would have been mockery, all because he exalted himself against the Lord. For was not Israel a derision to you? Was he not... Found, what was he found among thieves? For wherever you speak of him, you shall shake your head in scorn, you who dwell in Moab. Leave the cities and dwell in the rock and be like the dove which makes her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. So this is a reference, you know, four years, late, four years earlier, Jerusalem was conquered, right? Well, the Moabites are sitting over on the other side of the, of the Dead Sea. They're saying, na 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 right? Dwelling all secure, Right? God doesn't like that song either. God doesn't like arrogance. God doesn't like na 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 na, right? Especially for his people. And so um, we have heard uh, the pride of Moab. He is exceedingly proud of this loftiness and arrogance and pride and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it's not right. His lies have made nothing right. So uh, the pride of Moab was what took them down. Verse 31, therefore I will wail for Moab. Notice the heart of the Lord here. Is he bringing punishment on Moab? Absolutely he is. But he says, I will wail for Moab. I will cry out for Moab. I will mourn for the men of Kirharis. O vine of Sibma, I will weep for you with the weeping of Jazer. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach out to... They reach to the sea of Jazer. The plunderer has fallen on your summer fruit and your vintage. Joy and gladness are taken from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab. I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. No one will tread with joyous shouting, not joyous shouting. So destruction's coming on Moab. The prophet Jeremiah speaks wailing. He's, he's compassionate. He reflects the heart of God. God, God says, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish. Are there going to be people eternally that go to hell? 
Yeah, there will. Is God going to rejoice over that? Not at all. Not at all. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 34, from the cry of Heshbon to Elilah and to Jahaz, they have uttered their voice from Zoar to Horonam like a three-year-old heifer. For the waters of Nimrim shall be also be desolate. Moreover, says the Lord, I will cause to cease in Moab the one who offers sacrifices in the high places and burns incense to his gods. Therefore, my heart shall wail like flutes for Moab. And like flutes, my heart shall, shall wail for the men of Kirharis. Therefore, the riches they have acquired have perished. So you can't trust in riches during times like this. For every head shall be bald and every beard clipped. On all the hands shall be cuts and the loins, on the loins sackcloth, a general lamentation on all the housetops of Moab and in its streets. For I have broken Moab like a vessel in which is no pleasure, says the Lord. They shall wail how she has broken down, how Moab has turned her back with shame. So Moab shall be a derision and a dismay to all those about her. So, again, pagan worship, uh, security and riches, they're all futile. They're all futile. For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. So they'll be taken like an eagle. You ever seen an eagle take its prey? It's pretty impressive. We were at the beach a few years ago, and we're looking at this. This is just a side note. We see this osprey come in and grab a fish out of the ocean, right? You ever seen that? It's pretty cool, right? And we're looking at, and the osprey grabs the fish, kind of flies back this way, and we're like, well, that was cool. And then about three seconds later, the eagle is chasing the osprey and his fish, and they're coming this way, right? I mean, the eagle to the osprey looks like a helicopter kind of coming in over a Robin, right? It was crazy, right? You don't want to be a victim of an eagle. That was no extra charge for that. (laughs) Behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. Just imagine that picture. Kirioth is taken, and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab shall be that day shall flee like the heart of a woman in birth pangs, and Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. Take note, United States of America. And Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. You know, again, I said earlier, who's worse? The the Jews that rejected, that knew the Lord but rejected him? Or the pagans that never knew him? I don't know. But I don't want to be... I fear for a nation that once had a relationship with the Lord. A nation that was established by the Lord. And then later rejects the Lord within, a, frankly, a couple hundred short years. It's pretty sobering. Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. Fear in the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. He who flees from the fear shall fall into the pit, and he who gets out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For upon Moab, upon it, I will bring the year of their punishment, says the Lord. So it's kind of like 
Yeah, you can, uh, you know, if you want, you can, you can try to escape, but you'll fall into a pit. And then if you get out of a pit, you'll fall into a snare. Like there's no escape from the, from the judgment of God. Those who fled stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of exhaustion, but a fire shall come out of Heshbon, a flame from the midst of Sihon, and shall, shall devour the brow of Moab, the crown of the head of the sons of the tumult. Woe to you, O Moab! The people of Chemosh perish, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters captive. Yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, says the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. So again, even in, even in the midst of all this judgment, we see the grace that in the latter days, God's going to bring back the captives of Moab's. So these are tough words to read, right? But think about the relevance for us. We got power struggles in the world today. They had power struggles in 600 BC, right? Nothing's new under the sun, right? Who wins the power struggles? God does. God wins the power struggles. And his people are on his side. For us, there's always going to be a temptation to trust in our strength or the strength of the world or the strength and security in the comforts of life. But please, 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 now more than ever, really, today is the day of the Lord, right? In these days, we should be on our knees asking the Lord of hosts to have his way in our lives individually as well as in the world, right? And it's a bad time. It's always a bad time. But it's a bad time to become entangled in the affairs of this life. It's a bad time to be entangled in the affairs of this life. I don't want to butcher it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. No one entangled in warfare, I'm sorry, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We are privileged to be soldiers because of Jesus Christ. He did all the work so that we could be a soldier. And so we need to be faithful at that. We need to be faithful at that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you made us a soldier, that you saved us. Lord, our, we don't deserve anything better than what the Moabites got or what the Philistines got or what the Egyptians got. And yet, Lord, you've made a way for us that we could be saved, that we could not only be saved, but we could have abundant life. Lord, the world can't promise us abundant life. But you can, and you do. And so we thank you for that. Lord, help us to lean on you. Help us to abide in you so that we may bear fruit in these days. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.